Every Lord's Day, we need a fresh dose of reminding ourselves of the miracle that God has worked on our behalf out of His love. I don't know if you ever sit back and think about how, how almost um, fantasy this could sound to somebody who believes only in what man can do. And it, it really does raise the question as to why sane people would believe in what are humanly impossible things, things like escaping death, things like being released from my own sin nature, uh, transformation of life. We believe these things because of the promises of God, but we believe them also because we've seen this level of power demonstrated in the lives of those who belong to Jesus. And it's happened generation after generation and century after century right to this very hour. This is not just a pipe dream. This is reminding ourselves why what we see happening in the lives of people is so. What's, what's behind it? Or better, who is behind it? By the time that Silas and Timothy, Paul's missionary companions, had rejoined him, he had already moved west from Athens, where he had gone initially from Berea, from Athens westward over to Corinth. It's just a short distance. And what his fellow missionaries shared about all the good things that were continuing to unfold in the lives of the believers in Thessalonica filled Paul with gratitude and joy. This is what occasioned the letter that he's writing to them. It filled him with gratitude because only God could have created such transformation and such perseverance in the lives of these brand new believers. What was happening among them was so remarkable that news of their conversion, this radical change of life, had actually spread throughout the whole Mediterranean region, in the north of Greece, in the south of Greece, and beyond that. Having shared with these new believers how thankful he and the other missionaries are for them, Paul begins to explain further why he is so grateful to God for what was happening. And so he begins in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4 with these words, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now, before we go any further, it just raises the question, how could Paul be so sure? We know God has chosen you. We know God loves you. We know your brothers. What gives the missionaries confidence that these are, in fact, brothers in the faith? What observable evidence demonstrates that God loves them and that God has chosen them? Love is real, but it's intangible. God's choice of these individuals is by definition within His mind and purposes before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. And being born again into the family of God to make one a brother or sister in Christ is the work of the Spirit 
in the soul of a person. It's, it's not in the visible realm. And all of these are actions of God. He makes the first move. He's the one that accomplishes salvation for us. We know that we cannot save ourselves by our own efforts. And yet, all these divine actions, eternity past and in the spiritual realm, become apparent because of what they produce in people. What are the outward manifestations of the Spirit's illumination, the Spirit's regeneration and indwelling of a person? Now, like Paul, when we're sharing the gospel with people, it brings us joy to see God at work. We know we can't humanly accomplish what needs to happen in their hearts to bring them to repentance and faith. It's not dependent on our eloquence. It's, it's not just the timing of things. Um, in fact, sometimes we're astonished when people do get saved because of how badly we presented the gospel. And we're astonished that they don't get saved because of how clearly we presented the gospel. It's, it's clearly a work of God. We can't bring people to life spiritually. We are messengers, but it's God and only God that can actually bring them life. Now, from the standpoint of the Thessalonians, it, it strengthens our faith, put ourselves in their shoes or their sandals, as it were. It strengthens our faith to have those who walk with God express that they see God at work in us. It helps us weather the trials that we're facing when godly people are confident that we actually belong to God. So what were Paul and his companions seeing? What does God at work in an individual look like? What made them so confident about the spiritual state of the Thessalonian Christians? I mean, we can look out across a, a crowd like this today and we're all here to worship the Lord, you can't say, well, you know, th this person sings especially loud. He must be saved. This person um, closes his eyes. He must be saved. This person raises his hand. He must be saved. This person doesn't raise his hand. He must be No, all these, th these are not the things that are going to mark a person as actually belonging to God. What are the things that mark a person as actually belonging to God? How can we know that we belong to God. And I know that uh, for a number of us at different junctures of our life, we, we struggle with, do I actually belong to Jesus or not? And there can be a variety of reasons that we struggle. Well, Paul answers why he's so confident in verses 5 through 10. He starts with the key word, because. So let's go back to verse 4, and let's just read through the whole passage to the end of the chapter. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Remember, Macedonia is in the north of Greece, Achaia in the south. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So let's look at three characteristics that Paul lays out here about these believers that demonstrate to the missionaries that these people actually belong to God. First, the gospel has turned you to God. We see that at the beginning of verse 5. We also see that in verses 9 and 10 explained further. The gospel has turned you to God. Second, in the second part of verse 5 and into verse 6, you suffer for the word with joy. And of course, the text talks about the secret to that is the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that actually gives them that ability. And then verses 7 and 8, you have become a public example to all believers. We're going to look at this text under those three headings and try to learn for ourselves whether I actually belong to the Lord, whether you actually belong to the Lord, what should I be looking for, what's a mark of God at work in us. So first, let's look at this really major point, and perhaps this is the greatest one, the others come from it. The gospel has turned you to God. Beginning of verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This good news came to you in word. Not only in word, but it came to you in word. So by definition, good news comes in the form of words. But it's not empty talk or wistful rhetoric. God's words have intrinsic power to accomplish whatever He says. It's not just that they're truthful. It's not just that they unveil reality. It's that they have active power. When we talk in our church about life by the book, we're not just saying keep the rules. We're saying this book, this collection of God's words brings power by the Holy Spirit into our lives. They are life-changing words, life by the book. So, just as God spoke everything into existence out of nothing, He used words to create the universe, so it is with gospel words. They are vehicles of God's power. And that power was evident as the missionaries preached to the Thessalonians. This miraculous energy force flowed through the missionaries and into the minds and hearts of their hearers. John 6, 63, Jesus talks about the power of His words. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So, what makes the words powerful is, is the person of God that has spoken them. There, there's a personal power 
to these words. It's not just that you're going to do a bit of hocus pocus and you say this mantra five times and presto, you've got power. It's that you're conveying the words of God who has infinite power to back his words with action. The power is personal. And we see that the gospel came to them not only in word, but in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit energizes the word to convince and to convict and to draw the hearers just as the Spirit filled the apostles with boldness and clarity, freedom of speech to communicate the gospel truth. Often when we're sharing the gospel, there's this divine transaction, this divine activity going on. God's power is flowing through both the messenger and the hearer. And, and it's, it's at a miraculous kind of level. Have you ever tried to convince someone against their will? They're of the same opinion still. And, and the gospel comes to people and confronts them and causes them to reverse course and stop trusting themselves and start trusting in God, start, stop loving their sin and said to pursue the Savior from sin. This is a kind of work at a level that requires the miraculous power of God. It's not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. This is happening everywhere in the world as the apostles share the gospel. It continues to happen to this day. And Paul, Paul talked about it, for instance. He'd gone, you remember, Thessalonica, Berea, and then uh, south to uh, Athens, and then across to Corinth, which was a, a decadent town, seaport town, um, very enamored with man's wisdom and rhetoric, very indulgent in every kind of, of immorality. And Paul came there, and he, he had tremendous opposition. But he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, when you read about the Apostle Paul, you think, well, certainly he never feared anything. He was fearless. I mean, look at what he took on. Now, he confesses, I was afraid. You think, oh, he's, if there's ever a strong person, the Apostle Paul has to be, he's like the epitome of strong. He says, I was with you in weakness. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. It wasn't his fancy turn of phrase. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The way Paul preached the gospel in Corinth should never have worked. I mean, you're supposed to adapt to your culture, right? You're, you're supposed to say things the way the culture says them. You're supposed to affirm what they believe, and then you kind of like sneak in the gospel in there and kind of wean them over. Not the way he did it. He didn't go there to impress them. He went there to save them. 
And if they were going to be rescued, they needed just pure, simple gospel. Focus on Jesus. The whole evangelistic effort of the apostles was a manifestation of divine power and authority. The lead-off evidence that these persons who received the word of the gospel were actually chosen by God. Now, people can debate a lot about election, about being chosen by God. How do you know you're chosen by God? Do you believe? Are you taking these as the word of God? Is the power of God evident in your own heart and mind where you receive the gospel? That's what you need to worry about. In fact, once in Jesus' ministry, I often think of this. Um, someone asked, are there few that be saved? I mean, you know, who are the chosen and who are not? He says, make sure you enter in. There's a lot of people that like debating about theology. They don't have any time for figuring out whether they actually belong to God. Trust him. Trust him. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, later in the letter, Paul is going to say this, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's energizing. It's operating. The power is on in a believer. First Thessalonians 9 and 10, end of our passage this morning, he explains further what that actually looked like. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They themselves report what kind of reception we had among you. Who, who is that? That's not just the testimony of Silas and Timothy. It's the testimony of believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia, throughout the entire country of Greece. And to what were people everywhere in Greece bearing witness? They were testifying, because they had seen it, that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, it could be a little bit difficult for us to appreciate how mind-blowing this is. Because they lived in a world drowning in idolatry. Remember what Paul saw in Athens. He went down south to Athens and what he saw there. In Acts 17, 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, waiting for Silas and for Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. They say in Athens there are statues of every kind, stone, marble, wood, gold, silver, some 30,000 of them. There were altars to every god imaginable, not only the regular pantheon of gods, like Athene, the mother of the air, the meter, the mother of the earth, Zeus, the god of force, but to philosophy and benevolence and rumor and shame. Atop the Acropolis, a 40-foot statue of Minerva, goddess of war and civilization, observable from every sector of the city, as if to say, in this region, idolatry rules over all. Reminds me of Cambodian Bang Lung, of the sleeping Buddha over the top of the city. But his eyes were 
closed. Here, you know, you look at what fills our museums today from the ancient world, and a lot of it has to do with idolatry. A lot of it has to do with the gods that they worship. And remember that Athens was the leading cultural city of Greece, so it epitomized the spiritual state of the entire Mediterranean world. This was the spirit of the age. Darkness reigned. So turning from idols was revolutionary. Just as worshiping a living and true God, a God not represented by man-made statues and shrines as were the fictional, imaginary, man-made gods of paganism. You know, we think our own culture is sophisticated because... We don't go around and, and see, at least here in our country, you don't see statues that are supposed to be gods that people worship. But we still pursue pell-mell substitutes for the living and true God. We still bow at the altars of human intellect and observation, read science, and wisdom. We worship our science and technology. We bow to the philosophy of the age. And there's little interest in the wisdom of God and of His authority or any concern about His infinite power. Instead, we pursue the power of money and influence. We sell our souls for indulgence and pleasures that God has defined as evil and harmful, and somehow we believe we're better off for pursuing them and snubbing God. And we prove ourselves hostile to anyone who dare limit our self-destructive appetites. Idols are basically a way of our worshiping ourselves instead of the God, the good God, who has created us for His glory and for His pleasure and for our good. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, raised from the dead, the one who delivers us from the coming wrath. The Greek culture, you know, had a big divide between physical and spiritual. Spiritual was high level. Physical was low level. The Creator God, the true God, doesn't think that way. He created both the visible and the invisible. And when He saves us, He saves us not just in our immaterial part, but He will actually rescue our bodies from the grave. Here is a God who's not merely spiritual, far removed from the harsh realities of life on earth. This is a God. A God, the Son, who was born human. The God-man. A God who suffered alongside us and for us. The one who never sinned who took in his own body the death we deserved and then rose again after three days. And 40 days after his resurrection, ascended into heaven with the promise to return. This is a radically different God than the ones that paganism worshiped. 
And the Thessalonian believers were eagerly waiting for his return from heaven, not with the craven fear of those who know that they have sinned against God and as guilty ones deserve his wrath, but with joyful expectation of those who know their sins have been forgiven and wiped clean, and that an eternal inheritance awaits them in the everlasting kingdom of the Messiah, the Savior King. All of this was profoundly countercultural. It did not affirm the evil around them. It confronted it. It offered hope of rescue from it. It was an open invitation to all ethnicities for anyone who would receive it by faith. This is the message the apostles preached in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in Corinth, because this is the only gospel there is. Listen to what he said to the Athenians shortly after he left in the northern region. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place. In other words, he's the Lord of history that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. He presents to them a God who's not far away. He presents them a God who's not a fictional creation of man. He presents them to a God who is the source of their own life and the source of love and kindness and provides everything about their life already. This open call to all ethnicities enraged the Jews. This is why they were persecuting the missionaries who considered the Messiah exclusively their own Savior King. But ironically, what amplified the testimony of these new believers was largely the hostility that they faced. And they faced it from pagans and from Jews. It pushed the gospel in new communities and displayed how deeply committed these brand new Christians were to the gospel they had believed. Who would risk so much for a lie? And how could you explain such a display of power in the radical redirection of their lives? It really was stunning. It was stunning to pagans. It was stunning to Jews. So here are some questions we need to ask ourselves as we consider our own state, have you received the word of the gospel as the word of God, not just human beings? Stop talking about traditional religion and organized religion. Organized religion never saved you. Tradition never saved you. It's God who saves you. That that's just a red, that's like off the topic. What are you doing with God? And are you willing to receive the good news of the gospel as from God, the living and true God? And having done so, has it caused you to turn away from the idols of your heart to the living and true God? Or have you just added him to the pantheon of your other idols? Like, oh, well, I might as well have that genie. I'll rub that. I'll rub that. What do you call it? What does a genie live in? Yeah, a bottle lamp. Yeah, rub that lamp. I'll rub that bottle every now and then, you know, to get something out of this God. Then I'll worship the other gods because I, I want to be happy. I don't want to be fulfilled. Have you turned from idols 
to the living and true God? And is your life about serving God while you eagerly wait for his son, Jesus Christ, to return from heaven? Is that what life is about for you? Or are you thinking religion in its place? Are you thinking, give my nod to God? Are you thinking, well, you know, to be respectable, I've got to show up at least once. Maybe, you know, if I'm really radical, once a week, but maybe once a month, maybe Eastern Christmas, maybe every now and then, or, or is my whole life Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, at home, at work, at school, is it about serving Jesus? Waiting for him, knowing I'm going to answer, for him, answer to him, but, but more than that, knowing that I'm an ambassador for him and, and that I've got an inheritance waiting for me and I'm, I've, I've got the best boss in the world. And, and I've got the best future that's possible, and I'm going to live toward that future. These are marks of those that are truly born again. Second characteristic of these believers, you suffer for the word with joy. Second part of verse 5 and end of verse 6. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The credibility of the missionary's gospel witness was in part their own willingness to suffer for the sake of advancing the good news. I mean, when they came into Thessalonica, remember, they still had wounds from the beating they had received in Philippi. And, and they had been publicly beaten, thrown into prison, and here they are still going at it. Imprisonment and beatings, mob attacks, legal pressure, all of these failed to turn the missionaries from their devotion to Christ and to spreading his gospel. Well, the Thessalonians imitated that same level of commitment because it's for sure that the enemies of the gospel tried, tried to like abort the whole effort by putting such pressure on them, driving out the missionaries. Their reception of the gospel was not riding on the coattails of popularity. Now, we are, you know, we have enjoyed in our country um, years of where Christianity is kind of a respectable thing. I mean, we still have scripture verses on our national monuments and buildings. And, and there's much about our culture that was actually shaped by Christian values. And so, th there has been a respectability about it. And we're seeing that shift, not completely. I mean, it's, it's still really good compared to a lot of places in the world, but we are seeing a rise of hostility to it. And the question is, are, are you a, a Christian because it's popular, or are you a Christian because it's true? And because God is actually real. And will you hold on no matter who hates you because of it? Or who thinks you're stupid? Or who punishes you for what you believe and how you live? None of us wants that kind of thing, but, but those are things that are important to demonstrating that we are for real. 
Gospel power at work provokes the powers of darkness. It threatens their dominion. It it does not accommodate them. It overturns them, and they fight back. So willingness to suffer for Jesus has ever been an acid test of genuine conversion. Jesus Christ himself set the example, just as the missionaries did. They say, you are imitators of us and of the Lord. In fact, Jesus declared that you can't be his disciple unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. The cross is an instrument of torture and death. It expressed the hostility and hatred of human beings and of Satan himself for God and his truth and his son and his people. And those who believe only because of the emotion of the moment or because of the surge of the crowd do not survive the pressure of affliction and persecution. Only those who have life from God. Matthew 13, 20 to 21, as Jesus talks about, talks teaches through the parable of the sower, he explains, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, Jesus contrasts that with those who have saving faith. In verse 23 of Matthew 13, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. Now, he's using agricultural metaphor, and, and most of us don't live in an agricultural society anymore. But we know this much, it takes time to bear fruit. If you're going to be a farmer, you have to persevere. You don't plant today and harvest tomorrow. Truly born-again people continue to show life, and in time, they bear fruit. They don't shrivel up as soon as affliction or persecution arises on account of the Word of God. They persevere. We talked about this a lot as we studied through the book of Hebrews. They don't affirm the lies of pagan thought. They don't twist and modify gospel truth to make life easier on themselves in the face of a hostile world. Nobody enjoys being mistreated. Nobody enjoys pressure and affliction. But your faith is proved genuine by these trials. False faith crumbles. So, do not look at your trials and sorrows as enemies. Even if they are coming from the enemies of the gospel, God uses these to purify you, to strengthen you, to vindicate you. Not only are you proving that your faith is genuine, you are heaping up eternal reward. And and the apostles talk about this a lot. Jesus talks about this. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or James, half-brother Jesus, says, Count it all joy, my brothers 
when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as He pronounces blessing on people, He says, these are the happy people. These are the people that are actually part of My kingdom. He says this, blessed are those, happy are those, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so persecuted, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, this is the mark of authenticity. You are the salt of the earth, just like those prophets were. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If the salt tastes like everything around it, what's the point of it? If we just conform to the world in rebellion against God, how are we on mission? How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So this second mark that they really belonged to the Lord is they suffered for the word with joy. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, you know, I was thinking about this some, um, I've thought about this a lot, actually. We, we've done only small doses of suffering for the word. And and we sometimes fear what will come. But recognize that, that Christianity has survived not because it was a favored religion. It survived because of the power of God. It survived because it's reality. It survived because it's, it's real and, and God is at work and nobody can oppose God and win. So fear not. And I'm not saying that because I have no fear. I'm saying that because I need to be reminded not to fear. Be courageous. It's a mark of actually belonging to Jesus. And finally, you've become public example, a public example to all believers in verses 7 and 8, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Of course, this is all connected. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The word of the Lord, the gospel, was sounding forth like a trumpet blast reverberating through mountain ranges. It sounded not through a trumpet, but through the instrument of living human beings who've been rescued by Jesus. The breath of God blowing through them and sending out the sound of good news. The inward change that had happened to them was so outwardly obvious that the missionaries didn't have to prove that the gospel of Jesus actually works, that it actually turns people from darkness to light. The light of their faith was shining too brightly for anyone to miss it, the missionaries didn't have to make the case. This is what genuine conversion does. 
Just recently, we got to visit the Nunez's church again in Cancun. Years ago, 17 years ago, was our first visit there, and the congregation was almost entirely composed of new believers. And part of their growth was due to the gospel witness of the Nunez's, but what kept happening was that when a person trusted in Jesus, his or her life radically changed. Their family would at first think it was just a passing fad, but six months later or more, and the transformation is holding and the growth is continuing, whole families would end up trusting in Jesus. Why? Because they saw the power of the gospel in the exemplary lives of those that were truly born again. And what was happening 17 years ago is still happening today. The power of the gospel is sounding through the lives of those who've been rescued by Jesus. We are called to proclaim and to display the gospel, and the display demonstrates that the gospel we believe is not just words, but the power of God to save to the uttermost all those who believe. If you're a genuine believer, your mission in life is to glorify Christ and to benefit others, but it's not just your mission. It's actually who you are and the characteristic way you live. You can't do otherwise if you have the life of God in your soul because God is in you. The Spirit indwells you and empowers you, and and that divine life in you flows out to everyone around you like a river. There's a spring of life in you, and it's bubbling up and out and flowing out through every part of your life. And it's not just to the unsaved. It's not just the unsaved that are drinking from it and benefiting. It's believers. The text says believers are talking about this. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need to see the life of God in you flowing out to them. It it satisfies the, the thirst of the human heart. Jesus talked about this in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is a prophecy of what was going to happen, and this is exactly what we saw happen, chronicled by the book of Acts and displayed in epistles like 1 Thessalonians. So my question to you this morning is, who is benefiting from the life of God in your soul? Who, as it were, is drinking from the springs of living water flowing from the Spirit's work in you? This is is not, look, you you might be 10 years old. If you're born again, you've got life in you, and it flows out to others from you. If you're 95 and a shut-in, there's life in you and flows out to others. This is not age-restricted. This is not education-dependent. This is not geographically conscribed. It is Anyone who actually is born again has this life of the Spirit, and it's beneficial to those around them. You cannot effectively glorify God by shouting the gospel over the wall to people you don't know and who don't know you. 
They need the opportunity to see God at work in your life close up. So move into their lives. Let them get to know you. Start with the people who are already close to you. Your family, your husband, your wife. Believers need this too. Your children, your parents, your coworkers, your neighbors. And then shine. Let the gospel reverberate through your home and your workplace and your community. This is what the gospel does in those that belong to God. Just this morning in Sunday school, we were looking at Psalm 67, and the psalmist essentially said the same thing. May God be gracious to us and bless us, cause His face to shine on us, that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. We're here to display how good God has been. The good news. We're here to display how powerful God is and and how he rescues us from sin and from death, from the wrath to come. This is how to, what to look for in your own life and in the lives of anyone who truly belongs to God. The gospel has turned you to God. You suffer for the word with joy, and you have become a public example to all believers. May God give us the grace and the power through His Son and by His Spirit to live this way wherever we are. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank You for Your Word and for the Gospel, and thank You, Lord, for the consistency of the message that You've delivered us, delivered to us through Your prophets and through Your apostles and through Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank You that some 2,000 years removed from the events that we're reading about, that we still see the evidence of Your power in the earth through the gospel that You've given us to proclaim. God, I pray You would make us a trumpet blast to all the world, that You would make us light in the darkness, that you would make us that river of living water flowing out to quench the thirst of the human heart, a thirst that only God can satisfy. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.